It's Tuesday, December 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After eight years and two investigations, Major Matthew Goldstein is being charged with murder in the death of an alleged Taliban bomb maker during a 2010 deployment to Afghanistan. Now, President Trump is saying that he will be reviewing the case, calling him a hero. Todd South, reporter for the Military Times, joins us for how the story unfolded, leading to these charges which carry the possibility of the death penalty. Next, it's a growing problem, especially now during the holidays. Porch pirates. As we are getting more and more things delivered to our houses every day, now you have to think about more than being there when the package arrives. You have to worry about people stealing your packages right from your doorstep. Elizabeth Weiss, reporter for USA Today, joins us for what to do about porch pirates. Finally, as malls across the country continue to lose storefronts, what happens to the mall Santa? Sometimes there is no crowd, no line of kids waiting to sit on Santa's lap. It's not happening everywhere, but some mall Santas are struggling. Jennifer Levitz, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about what's a Santa to do when it gets really, really slow. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It is fabulous that it got the president's attention. And if that is who has to step in to fix it and make it right, so be it. My husband took care of an enemy combatant who did harm and was planning to do harm, more harm. Joining us now is Todd South. He's a reporter for the Military Times. Todd, you're also a Marine veteran of the Iraq War, so thank you very much for your service. We appreciate that. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about a former Green Beret major is facing murder charges for a 2010 Afghanistan incident. His name is Major Matthew Goldstein. He apparently at the time, it was a, a Taliban bomb maker that they captured. He said that he shot him and there was an investigation. There's been two investigations now. And now we're coming to this, that he's being charged with that murder. What do we know about this story? As you mentioned, the, de- the deployment was in 2010. It was during a pretty heated time of combat around the time of the Battle of Marja, in which a lot of Marines and soldiers were killed in bomb incidents, ID attacks, things like that. He was in special forces training Afghan military and working alongside uh, Marines doing clearing raids in very dangerous parts of the country. And around the time that this happened, a few Marines had been killed first in a booby trap doorway during some urban operations and a few days later during a sniper attack. He actually coordinated some return fire and, and found a sniper and did some pretty heroic things, you know, yeah, separate from this incident for which he was recognized at the time with a Silver Star Medal, which is the third highest award for valor, and was later recommended to upgrade that to the second highest at Distinguished Service Cross. And then about a year later, my understanding from sources in the media and also sources of my own, he was interviewing for a position, you're going to leave the Army and go work for the, for the CIA. And during a polygraph test, he admitted to having conducted this alleged homicide uh, and killed this alleged uh, Taliban bomb maker. And that was the first time that anybody really knew what had happened because of that polygraph test. Right. As far as it's been determined, there wasn't any, at least def- there definitely wasn't any public knowledge of this, whether it was known within circles within the, within the unit itself or other military members or military brass, that's not clear, but it definitely didn't surface until that particular incident. To my understanding, that was then reported back to the Army that that had happened. And then what happened with that investigation? There was no charges against him then. I think they recommended a general discharge for him. Correct. So the military works a little differently than some of the civilian courts. So they, they call what's called a, a board of inquiry, basically, in some ways, similar to what you would call, say, a grand jury in the civilian system. However, it's comprised of military officers looking at all the circumstances and what evidence is presented. At the time, as far as we understand, again, from, from some unnamed sources, a number of his fellow soldiers 
and other folks on the deployment were offered immunity to testify against him. They, were, they tried to gather statements and gather evidence, and no one, as far as I know, uh, agreed to testify. Even with immunity offered, they didn't agree to testify against him or, or say anything about the, the major at the time. So it really didn't go anywhere. But there was enough, I think, to recommend that discharge. And at the same time, or around that time, the then Secretary of the Army not only refused the upgrade of the award, but also rescinded the Silver Star Medal Award and his Special Forces tab, which is the designator that makes you Special Forces. It's a very highly coveted designation, takes a tremendous amount of work and selection and effort over the course of a year or more to get into that elite group of soldiers. So then how did this all resurface? He did an interview with Fox News where he admitted the killing, and that launched a second investigation, which leads us to these charges now. He was in a weird kind of status for actually a couple of years, really on administrative status, not really serving in uniform. And then he gave an interview to Fox News. And uh, in that broadcast public interview, he admitted, yes, he did this. And his commanders at the time told him there was nothing wrong with what had happened. And he kind of spelled out what has been reported since. I mean, what was it in the original files that had been obtained, obtained by some media outlets after the 2011 admission and the, and the investigation. And allegedly what happened was he found this bomb anchor. Supposedly they took him off base. They shot him, buried his remains. And then later on, he and two other soldiers dug him up and then burned the body in a trash pit. Matthew Goldstein's lawyer saying that some of that might not have happened, but Matthew still maintains that he did shoot him. And I, I, I think part of his reasoning was that he was afraid that he was going to go out and do this again. And even the people that were identifying him were afraid that if this man was released, which he was due to be released right away, that they'd retaliate against them and people that were providing information to the army. That's correct. This guy, this alleged bomb maker, was identified by Afghan locals, by an Afghan tribal elder. And again, to my understanding, the tribal elder who basically fingered the guy, they kind of crossed paths. So this alleged bomb maker knew exactly who you identified him. You know, these are very small communities, very local people. Everyone knows everyone. And the elder goes to Goldstein and then the other soldiers and says, look, if this guy comes back, I'm dead. It seems to be, again, based on what Goldstein told investigators and said on Fox News, that that's when he decided to take that into his hands. He had seen that happen before where people they detained within days or weeks, they were shooting at them again on the battlefield. Many people are calling Matthew Goldstein a, a hero for his service and all of the heroic things that he did, the things that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview. The president has also weighed in on this, saying he would be reviewing the case, but there hasn't been a, you know, a final verdict on it. Just bringing more awareness to the case, though, uh, what do you think that does for, for his fate? It makes it more complicated, frankly. Um, there's been a, a general trend, probably not aware to the, the, the general public, of concern about what they call undue command influence. This is basically when, say, a very high up, high ranking, say, you know, colonel or general gets involved in a lower level situation investigation or court martial proceedings who's not part of that actual legal or judicial proceeding. That has been kind of cited by defense attorneys as being a problem because it can kind of muddy things and influence people and in how they conduct the investigation or conduct the court proceedings. For the commander in chief to dip into a situation that is really just, I mean, even though this happened in 2010, the charges like for the legal process basically started last week. I mean, those charges are preferred by a commander. They'll be reviewed by an interim commander for up to, I think it's four months, 120 days to determine whether this is enough to go to what's called an Article 32 hearing. That's basically like uh, like a magistrate hearing uh, for probable cause, as we've seen the civilian side, that would then lead to potential charges and a trial and a true defense. You know, so we're talking months, maybe years. You know, it's like the governor of a state stepping in two days after the arrest of somebody to talk about clemency when the <laughs> right. process hasn't even worked itself out yet. He does face the possibility of the death penalty for this. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Todd South, again, thank you very much for your service and thank you for joining us today. Todd covers ground combat for the Military Times. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. 
he's got a ring video camera on his front door. Right. He gets a note saying, you know, there's been activity at your front door. So he looks at the footage and there's somebody walking up to his doorway, pulling out her purse, stuffing the package in it and walking off. Joining us now is Elizabeth Weiss, national correspondent for USA Today. It's the holidays. Everybody's getting all their gifts together for the big day. As we all do now, everybody orders stuff on Amazon. So there's an influx of packages coming to our house And this has been a problem that's been going on for a little bit of time now. The problem of porch pirates, people stealing packages from your porch before you get a chance to bring them inside. You wrote about one guy in particular, his name is John Priscorn, who went through this whole ordeal of actually being able to capture the person who was stealing his packages. What do we know about this? pretty amazing story. And in this instance, this is a guy who lives in San Francisco, in a neighborhood called Diamond Heights. He had a package delivered. He was supposed to get it delivered on Saturday when he was home. So he tried to be home when it was delivered, but uh, just didn't show up on Saturday and instead came on Monday. And of course, he and his wife were at work. He's got a ring video camera on his front door. Right. He gets a note saying, you know, there's been activity at your front door. So he looks at the footage and there's somebody walking up to his doorway, pulling out her purse, stuffing the package in it and walking off. And these video. ring cameras, the quality on these cameras and the pictures that they take in the video are, are really good. So I'm sure you were able to kind of see pretty good details of the person oh, who's doing it. He's got a Johnny Cash shirt on him. You can see everything. <laughs> and here he is at work. He's in downtown San Francisco. He can't get home. He can't do anything about it. And he's like, ah! so he takes the footage and he posts it on Nextdoor, which is a, a kind of a neighborhood social media site. He posts it on Nextdoor. A lot of people say, oh, wow, bummer, boy, that happened to me. But one woman who lives within a block of him said, I had something stolen just before that. She knows that lots of her neighbors have these cameras. Did anybody see anything? And within a couple of hours, she gets an email from a neighbor just down the block who says, yeah, my camera caught someone who looks just like the woman who stole John's package. And I got her getting into a car and driving off and you can see the license plates. Wow. All of this got settled within 24 hours. They sent it to you know investigators and they were able to track it down there. And I noticed in your story, they went to go to her place. They had a search warrant. They found a bunch of other packages, a bunch of other things. His stuff was a, it was a sweater that his wife had ordered and a pair of socks. Oh, wow. It's like the lottery because you never know what you're going to get, especially if you're the one trying to steal these things. I mean, the thing that's remarkable about all this, engineers always say, you know, you, you can have fast, cheap, or good, choose two. And we've chosen fast and cheap. Good either costs money or it costs time, and we want things in two days. And how how to do that is difficult. It's also remarkable that we suddenly expect that somebody can drop a $120 Amazon cube in front of our houses, <laughs> and it can sit there a while, right. and it's not going to get stolen. I mean, if I said that to my mom 40 years ago, she would have been, are you insane? And it's crazy. The FBI doesn't really keep statistics on this, although 30% of Americans, according to some polls, say they've experienced this. In Denver, they have about a 7% arrest rate for porch pirates. You know, so it's just a hard crime to combat for police when they don't have a lot of the details. And they urge people to call them and let them know that things these things are happening. You know, in the case, uh, the first case that we were talking about, luckily everybody was connected enough where they can put those clues together. But as a regular person, what do we do? I know a lot of these things are coming from Amazon specifically, and they have a few options for people to help mitigate this. 
Right. If you really have something expensive coming and, you know, you don't happen to live behind a gate, you can you can have it delivered to your office if your office allows that, and right. depending on how big it is. And more and more offices are saying no because their mailrooms are filling up with everybody's packages. So that's problematic. Amazon has Amazon Key. If you have the right kind of door, you can install an electronic key that allows Amazon to open your door and put the package in. That freaks some people out. So it yeah, it's been... just that you don't want anybody at your home when you're not there kind of feeling. Exactly. Uh, they also have one, and I actually got to try this one. It's called it's Amazon Key, but it's in-car delivery. They're able to use OnStar to unlock a car. I actually had to borrow a car to get it to work because it didn't work <laughs> on my 1990 Honda. Surprise, oh, no. surprise. Um, but that actually was kind of brilliant because your car just doesn't feel quite as personal. Right. But it's got, you know, it depends on where it's parked. It's got to be parked where the person can get to it. So there are issues there. And then finally, Amazon has Amazon lockers in a lot of places where something's delivered. You get a code. You have three days to go and pick it up. But, of course, this, you know, kind of obviates the whole idea of getting something delivered to your house if you have to go out to pick it up. The other side is all these companies have made it very easy. If you call and say, my package was stolen, unless you're doing it every week, you're just, they're going to say, great, we'll refund it, we'll reship it. The other option is actually just going to the store and getting it yourself. So we'll... <laughs> You can do it the old-fashioned way, yeah. yes. Yeah, and that's actually what John Prescorn told me. It's like, you know, for things that won't fit through my mail slot anymore, I just go to a store. There you go. Elizabeth Weiss, National Correspondent for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. When they don't have people, shoppers to wave to, some of them will just wave to other employees that are walking along or at the customer service stand. And then they said that uh, the kids at the slow malls will just sit there for a very long time. You've, you know, Santa's only got so much material, and he's <laughs> got to now come up with new things to talk to him about. Joining us now is Jennifer Levitz, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We've been talking a lot about the death of the American mall and how stores are shuttering all over the place, leaving a lot of empty storefronts. But it's the holidays right now. And one of the most iconic things you think of is Santa and their prominent place in the mall. A lot of times you wrote a story for The Wall Street Journal about the Santas in these malls that are don't have a lot of foot traffic anymore because of the changing retail industry. What happens to these Santas that are at these malls that just don't have much traffic anymore? Like you said, they'll put the Santa in a very prominent place. Traditionally, you'll put the Santa in the middle of the mall in center court, and they'll have a display, and he's sitting there on a throne. With and long, so, lines. I mean, long I, lines. I can remember when I was a kid. Yeah, everything, the whole deal. It's just a real hub of activity. And But what, um, what we saw kind of going into some of these malls is the Santa would just be sitting there with no one around, or maybe just a few people kind of coming up. And it was, it was kind of a, a strange scene, because there's Santa and he's trying to look jolly, and he's just sitting there. So I started wondering, you know, what is Santa doing all day? And I went up and talked with some of these Santas, and they're, they're like, you know, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of people here, but the pressure's on. You never want to be caught looking gloomy, so they're trying to think of ways to kill the time. And, and uh, it's, But it's an odd image to see a bored Santa, or not, you know, a, a slow Santa. Right. Yeah, and, and we got to be clear, this isn't happening everywhere. It's not all malls. Um, no. you know, there's a lot of uh, new big shopping centers where you do still see the long lines, but there are a sect of uh, malls across the country that aren't 
really just aren't getting the same amount of traffic that they used to. You actually spoke to, I love the name, the International Brotherhood of Real Bearded Santas. And uh, what was their take on this stuff, on, on slowing mall Santas? So we know that mall vacancies rose to the highest level in seven years in the third quarter. And so at some of these kinds of malls, that's where you're seeing these these slow Santas. And so when I talked with the Santa trade group, which I note now goes by IBRBS because they, they want to be inclusive of Mrs. Claus. Right, right. They said that what's happening is, um, you, you know, you have some of these really hot, busy Santa jobs that are pretty coveted, but then a lot of these other Santas are starting to go to other types of Santa gigs. They're going to uh, parties and corporate events and, and then standalone stores and outlets or like the big Bass Pro Shop, they'll have a Santa. But he said of these ones in these slower malls, he said they're basically decorations. Yeah, I mean, you got to go where the work is, so it's smart to look for other avenues. A smart play by a parent would, I mean, if you know one of these type of malls, is to go there so you don't have to wait in the lines. But as much as you do hate the lines and everything, part of it is having people there and the hustle and bustle of the shopping and people moving around. I think that's part of it, you know, so you lose a little bit of that magic. Yes, exactly. I, I met several parents who did just that. They said, oh, I didn't go to this mall because I knew it would be busy. I came to this mall and they were in, I went to one mall on a, on a Sunday and it was it was very, very slow. They've lost like four big anchor stores. And a, a, a father said, oh, I just came right in here because, you know, the kids get irritable in the long line. And so they whipped right in. But it, but on the other hand, just as you said, it's, it, there's something, I mean, we've all been in a mall where there's not many people. It, it's um, It doesn't have that same Christmassy feel, you know, something about the hospital. Bustle, bustle. Yeah. And um, I got to say, these Santas that are there, a lot of them are, I mean, they're giving it their best. They're waving and <laughs> they're trying to bring people in and, you know, they're, they're really uh, trying to stay in character. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, in the story you mentioned, you spoke to the Santa Claus Conservatory, another group, and they say that they do a lot of training on the resting smile face. We all know what the other one is, but the resting smile face, because you always have to look like you're, you know, ready for uh, the children to come up to you and, and you want to have a good experience. So they have to really work on looking the appearance of being upbeat. Yes. The, so the whole Santa job, there's a, a new set of skills that they need um, when it's slow because you'd never want to look, uh, as they describe it, un-Santa-like or not happy. And you never know who's going to have a cell phone, too. You don't want to get caught yawning and staring at your phone and, and looking bored. So they, <laughs> they teach him this sort of resting smile face and... Uh, they, they spend a lot of time just looking up and, and waving. And when they don't have people, shoppers to wave to, some of them will just wave to other employees that are walking along or at the customer service stand. And then they said that uh, the kids at the slow malls will just sit there for a very long time. If you're at a yes. busy place, they'll, they're, they're maybe a minute. You'll have a, a child on, on, up there on your lap and you're talking to them. Well, these kids might stay five, you know, ten minutes or, or more. And so, you've, you know, Santa's only got so much material and he's got to now come up with new things to talk Talk to him about. Yeah, it's an interesting turn in this job and the season, and we know it comes every year. So, like I said, it's just uh, it's just crazy to think that there are Santas there with no little kids lining up for them. Jennifer Levitz, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.